0: a lot of people say it's kind of the invisible disability but i always say you know it's right there all you have to do is look at their spelling so when you, and then it becomes no longer invisible so look at their spelling and listen to them read and you can see it and hear it but it's it's invisible in the sense that it's not a behavior issue and, and it doesn't distract other other students so that's why a lot of people call it an invisible disability because it's not distracting or or in you know impinging on anybody else but it is really easy easy to spot if you know what to look for.
1: Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most, Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Safronis. What are some misconceptions about dyslexia and how do they affect English learners? What are some strategies educators can use to help identify dyslexia in English learners? How does family engagement come into play once a student is diagnosed with dyslexia and what challenges might emerge with families of English learners? We discuss these questions and much more in our conversation with Dr. Kelly Sandman Hurley. Kelly Sandman Hurley is an author and co-founder of Dyslexia Training Institute. She received her doctorate in literacy with a specialization in reading and dyslexia from San Diego State University and the University of San Diego. She is also completing her TESOL certification. Dr. Kelly is a certified special education advocate assisting parents and children through the Individual Education Plan and 504 Plan process. She has training in mediation and also serves as an expert witness in the area of dyslexia. Dr. Kelly is also a past president of the San Diego branch of the International Dyslexia Association. She is a dyslexia consultant working with schools to improve services offered to students with dyslexia and training teachers. She co-created and produced Dyslexia for a Day, a simulation of dyslexia, and she is a frequent speaker at conferences. She's the author of the well-received book, Dyslexia Advocate, How to Advocate for a Child with Dyslexia Within the Public Education System. Before we get started with our conversation with Kelly, I just wanted to let listeners know that this episode and others were a direct result of a request made by a member of our EL community. So thanks, Nicole. It was your idea to get and English Learners on, and we're really happy to make that happen for you. If you have ideas for guests or topics, please email us at highestaspirations at elevationeducation.com. Remember that Elevation has two L's. If you email us, we will do our best to turn your idea into a future episode. Also, just a quick reminder that you can stay connected with us by joining our EL community at elevationeducation.com slash EL community. There you can leave us comments about this episode and others. You can also engage with great content like our Whiteboard Wednesday short video series, blog posts, and articles. And finally, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This will help us continue bringing you the best topics and guests on Highest Aspirations. As always, thanks for listening. Here's our conversation with Dr. Kelly Sandman Hurley. Dr. Kelly Sandman Hurley, thanks so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to talk about dyslexia, especially and ELs.
2: Yeah, same here. We've done an episode on kind of the general um, idea of English learners and disabilities and access to special education services, which was really well received. But as soon as I read the article um, uh, out of Language Magazine from you, I thought it'd be great to have you on. So so let's start um, with that article, um, which actually I found the last word of the title. Um, interesting. Um, it was it, the title was dyslexia and the English learner dilemma. Could you briefly describe the dilemma here to kind of tee us up for the rest of the conversation.
0: Sure. So there's actually, I think, two dilemmas. The first one is the dyslexia dilemma because dyslexia is still misunderstood. It's still not taught in teacher education programs. There's still a lot of different definitions floating around, a lot of misconceptions. So there's that whole dilemma. And then you throw in an extra added component of a student who's learning English as a second or third or fourth language. And now you've got a double dilemma or two dilemmas. So you have the dilemma of what do you do with the student with dyslexia? And then you have the dilemma of Oh my gosh! Now I have this student who's learning English as a second language, and I can't tell if it's dyslexia or if it's him learning him or her learning another language.
2: For sure, it sounds it. I mean, as a teacher myself, you know, both of those things. I taught Spanish, so the English learner thing wasn't too much of an issue for me. But when someone had um, dyslexia or or other, um, you know, sort of disabilities that I needed to address, it was it was really tricky. And I can imagine, you know, compounding those two can be difficult, especially given the language you talk. You talk about some of the misconceptions um, and and the, about dyslexia. I'm curious about how those misconceptions, in your view, and we've and we've sort of made clear as we've talked with, with one another that that you're an expert on dyslexia, but not you know a full on expert on English learners. So we're kind right. of we're just establishing that right away. Yes. But from what you've seen and from what you know about dyslexia, um, how might those misconnection, misconnections misconceptions, excuse me, <laughs> directly affect English learners?
0: So um, the the misconceptions about dyslexia tend to be that it's a visual issue. So they're seeing letters and words backwards or they're transposing things um, that they have a motivation issue that they, if they just found, I heard recently at, um, oh, I shouldn't even say it at my son's open house or back to school night that children who aren't reading well just haven't found the right book yet. Mm. I mean, so things like that are still being said and it's just, it's, it's kind of insane. I think if someone um, could read, they would. So um, it's just I'm just trying to understand what dyslexia is actually a phonological processing issue or it could be an orthographic processing issue and not a visual issue. They're not seeing things differently. They're not unmotivated. They're not trying to be rebellious. They don't have attention issues and they don't have speech. Well, they could have um, comorbid attention issues and they could have comorbid speech issues, but that's not what dyslexia is. So when you've got a student who's also an English learner, you have to remember that they're not going to show Learning disabilities in a visual way, so you do have to dig deeper to find out what it is, because all those other things just aren't true.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Like you said, it compounds the problem. I mean, those misconceptions. I think I've seen them before, and I think, I mean, dyslexia in general is one of those things. Even for someone who's a sort of traditional student, it's kind of hard to see like how how the student is struggling, and I suppose it requires a fair amount of testing and a fair amount of digging to figure out actually what is happening. And as you mentioned, there's just there's. I feel like there's not. It's not well known or known enough by teachers to be able to be um, diagnosed quickly and easily and in a way that makes sense so when you add the factor that you have now students who are coming speaking a variety of different languages and perhaps reading or perhaps not in their home languages and trying to learn in English um, you know you have a very difficult issue and remind me again like what's the percentage of people who are um, who are dyslexic is there like a number out there that's reliable
0: there is. It depends on who you ask. So um, I w- there are people who say it's one in five. Um, I tend to be a little more conservative and say it's probably between 10 and 15%. Mm-hmm. But um, the reason the numbers vary so widely is because it, it occurs on a continuum from mild, moderate to severe to profound. So you might have a lot of kids on the mild side who never really get diagnosed so that they would be included in that higher percentage of one in five or 20%. I kind of they, they tend to be okay in the classroom. Maybe they read a little bit slower and accommodations help them. But if you're just looking at the moderate to severe to profound, you're probably looking more to 10 to 15%.
2: Yeah. So, either way, you're talking about 10 to 20% of yeah, students. It's a, lot. And then it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a very lot. It is. Know? And then you're thinking about English learners, which is the highest uh, growing demographic in the country. And yes. clearly, you have, which which is also a demographic that um, is, is sort of suffering from the, the achievement gap or the opportunity gap, however you want to call it in education. And, you know, you add those two things together and you have a problem that's worth looking at, which, again, is why we're having this conversation.
0: Absolutely. You know, I do want to say, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, go ahead, please. I do want to say, um, I push back a little bit when people, well, not you in particular, a lot of people say it's kind of the invisible disability. But I always say, you know, it's right there. All you have to do is look at their spelling. So yeah. when, when And then it becomes no longer invisible. So look at their spelling and listen to them read. And you can see it and hear it, but it's, it's invisible in the sense that it's not a behavior issue and, and it doesn't distract other, other students. So that's why a lot of people call it an invisible disability because it's not distracting or, or in, you know, impinging on anybody else, but it is really easy, easy to spot if you know what to look for.
2: I'm glad you mentioned that. And I, you know, I, I certainly d- don't mind showing sort of my, my lack of knowledge in, in finding it. And I'm happy to be be used kind of as an example here. <laughs> I'm so, sorry. No, no, I'm serious. <laughs> it's, it's good. You know, I mean, I was a teacher for 17 years um, and I'm, I'd like to consider myself a person who's humble and sort of a lifelong learner. And it's Absolutely. something that this kind of blends into my next question, uh, which is something that I didn't receive. Um, I'm curious as to how much training teachers are being given on dyslexia in your um, experience? And, and what more should be done? I mean, frankly, I think I could have used a lot more training as I think I just proved.
0: Yeah. Well, no, so the, the answer, unfortunately, is there little to none, very, very little to none in any pre-service teacher trainings and most master's degree programs. There's any reading specialist programs. They take our classes all the time and they, they're constantly commenting. I can't believe I don't already know this. Yeah. I can't believe I don't already know this. And a lot of it isn't just about dyslexia, but it's about how the English language works. So in English language, teachers tend to get better training on how the English language actually works, but they still don't get training in dyslexia. So that's what groups like Decoding Dyslexia, which is a grassroots parent-led organization across the country, every state has has a, I don't really want to call it a branch because it, they're not, um, they're just parent-led, not just parent-led, but parent-led. And they are they are being really successful in in um passing legislation in states that require teachers to get better training but um it's still a long long road and teachers are just not getting the training universities just are not willing to change how they teach and to include dyslexia and if they do include dyslexia it's like maybe you know 45 minutes at one night of class An optional and then what they or- teach is really you know who knows what they're actually saying during that but there's a lot of politics involved unfortunately in what gets taught
2: Sure, and unfortunately, we see the same thing for for you know teaching, uh, you know future teachers about English learners. I mean, there's not a whole lot of stuff out there. I know the state of California has done a lot um, to to provide more classes, but in in many pre uh, pre-service teacher programs, there's just not a requirement to take courses on English learners. And here it is, as I just mentioned, the highest current demographic in the country, and teachers are getting into into these schools, and and the demographics are changing, and they don't know. The best strategies to work with these students and then like i've said a couple times now compound it with um things like dyslexia that they're also not educated on and you have you know a, a problem
0: right because dyslexia doesn't just affect you know people speaking english it affects humans so it affects them in their native language as well which is really interesting
2: right and so that was what i was thinking i actually didn't ask you the question before but when you gave that 10 to 20 percent number that's across the board right in all languages yes. or is that yes yeah?
0: Yeah. It's a human problem, not just a language problem. Yeah. It's just not actually, you know, let me rephrase that. I would say it doesn't occur as much in languages like Spanish that have a little bit more predictable orthographic patterns Mm -hmm. and it tends to come up more in their fluency scores than it would in a language like English, but it still occurs. It's still a brain issue that occurs in humans, not just people who speak English.
2: Sure. Yeah. I'm glad we made that point. So you talked about, what was the organization, the family, the parent led organization that you mentioned?
0: decoding dyslexia
2: yeah so decoding dyslexia sounds like it was it's something that you know like you said parents are have organized and they've done a fair amount of work and parent engagement family engagement has been something that we've talked about quite a bit um on this podcast so aside from that organization um which i don't know you can tell me if that sort of started independently of teachers or in collaboration with them but what do you think first the best way to work with parents of students who have um dyslexia is once it's diagnosed or suspected and then I'd love to get your take and again you know being being um, completely forthright that you're that you're not an expert on English learners but how might we work with parents of English learners once we know that dyslexia is either diagnosed or suspected
0: yeah the second part of that question is really hard for me but the first one um, once you find out that your student has dyslexia and your parent you need to get educated. And so, you, you know, I would encourage you to, or parents to go to their local decoding dyslexia website because they have tons of resources there for local resources for where you are. So whatever state you're in, you can find it, or it's just kind of dangerous to do a Google on dyslexia, but- um, as, it is
2: with, as it is with everything.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to, you know, there are places I prefer that people don't end up, but um, you know, you can go to places like the International Dyslexia Association and start there and they, can, they will have a lot of good information there, and then that will take you on the right path, hopefully. But just get educated, and don't take no for an answer. You really have to be your child's biggest advocate. You have to call IEP meetings. You have to speak up in those meetings. You have to understand the goals and the process and and what is appropriate for a student with dyslexia and what isn't appropriate. And so you when you're in those meetings, you have to be willing to be that parent, and but be that parent with the information that what what does and doesn't work with dyslexia like waiting isn't going to work for a kid with dyslexia and you know covered overlays aren't going to work for a kid with dyslexia none of that's going to work so you just have to be really really educated and be willing to be that parent because students uh schools are really hesitant to use the word dyslexia and they're really go ahead sorry
2: why is that i'm curious just to (laughs) interrupt
0: but um well, um, my personal opinion is that if you start admitting that the child has dyslexia, then you have to supply the appropriate intervention.
2: Provide services, yeah.
0: Yep. And so once you do that, then you're going down a rabbit hole and then the, that parents can tell their parents, tell their parent. You know, so unfortunately, what they see is a lot of people, they get the services for their child, but it never really reaches any other children. Mm-hmm. And most parents who go down that rabbit hole are doing it to help other children, not just theirs. And it doesn't really happen that often. Right. But um, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: You no, know, I was just gonna say we, we hear quite frequently, you know, that parents need to be advocates for their children, and they need to make sure that they sort of don't take no for an answer, that they set up these meetings, and so I, uh, you know, I guess I'll, I'll sort of take on a little bit the on the on the EL lens. I mean, it's it's you know it's hard, obviously, for those parents who may or may not speak English, may or may right. not understand how the educational system works, and this is just more evidence that. Now I'm happy to hear your reaction here as well, but just more evidence that schools need structures in place that especially schools that have lots of English learners, um, that, uh, that, that help those parents be a part of the community and give them, um, you know, the, 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 the power to, to, and the motivation to be, and and the tools, frankly, to be able to participate in their children's education. And, you know, we've done a lot of work and some episodes, um, on family engagement. So I'd encourage people to listen to those. Did you have anything to add there?
0: No, just as somebody who lives in San Diego, um, California, I will say that I have noticed a little bit of a cultural, um, not a, I don't want to call it a problem, but a cultural thing. I don't know how to describe it, where the parents really just put all their trust into the school yeah, yeah. and don't want to go and fight with the school. And so we, you know, I'm not really sure how to help there, um, but that's one place I would like to see a little bit more from the parents to say, no, 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 this isn't right. You you don't know my child mm-hmm. he is struggling and this is why, but they, they are hesitant to do that because they feel like it's the teacher knows what they're doing.
2: Yeah. We've seen that too. And I think that is largely a, cult, a cultural issue And many, in many cases, it could be that they just don't feel like they belong in the schools and that's not anything against the schools. It's just, that's kind of how it is. Um, and that's where, you know, not to go down the whole rabbit hole of family engagement here, but I think I'd, I'd be remiss not to mention that that's where, a lot of kind of um, family liaison, parent liaison programs have really, really been quite helpful because you have people from the community who are serving um, not only as sort of interpreters but also as kind of uh, cultural ambassadors, for lack of a better term, to really tell people that maybe sort of um, from a sa- from a similar cultural background or ethnic background about how the schools work and help them advocate for um, yes. for them. And that's we've seen a lot of success in that. Um, you know, but that's something that takes a lot to kind of start and implement. And again, we have lots of resources on that, but we'll, we'll kind of move on from there. But, uh, but I think that's an important element, you know, family engagement is really important.
0: It is. So
2: I'm assuming um, what makes it even more difficult, dyslexia that is to diagnose for English learners, is the fact that these students are, are far less proficient with the language. So educators may not have those ample opportunities to observe those signs, like you mentioned earlier, spelling and, and everything else. Um, am I, am I right there?
0: Yes, I agree. Yes.
2: And, and so like in a situation like that, I mean, that's just, it's just so important. I think that teachers kind of have the support that they need, whether that's an EL specialist or someone else. Um, but then that person's going to really need that training to be able to look out for those signs as well.
0: Yes. And you know, that's, that's going to be tough because there are so many different reasons and an English learner might not be reading well and to narrow it down to dyslexia is going to be hard.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it could be the language; it could be anything else. Is there is there any like is there are there any sort of telltale signs for an English learner, maybe somebody who's a Spanish speaker that's coming in? And you said it's you know it's it's a little less common in in Spanish um, that people can look for. Yes.
0: Yeah, so the best way to do it, and this isn't going to happen because there are way too many languages, but the best way to do it is to administer a phonological. Um, processing test in the student's native language. Mm-hmm. So in Spanish, I'm sure it's going to be a little bit easier to do that than um, some other languages. We have a really large Somalian population in San Diego. So I know that, I don't know if one even exists in for that population, but um, there are other things you can look for is um, in their native language, have them read something. And if they're reading slower than their peers, so their um, reading fluency is slower, that's going to be an indication, but you want to they may not be able to read their own native language. Maybe they weren't even exposed to it. So, you know, you have to look into whether... You can do a phonological processing in English, and it may come up as a false positive, but you're still going to give them the same intervention. And if it's a false positive, then they'll just improve faster than if they actually have dyslexia. If, if you can't do it in their native language, you can do it in English. And as long as they've been exposed to English long enough, to be expected to be able to manipulate the English language orally. Gotcha. So, does that make sense?
2: Absolutely, yeah, and I'll, okay. I'll unpack that a little bit, I think you said some things that are that are really important. One was, you know, the best way to do it is if there's an assessment or a test that the student can take in their native language. And while I think you mentioned that that's really difficult because there's lots of different languages spoken, you mentioned you have a, a large Somalian population in your area, um, and I would agree that, yeah, that is difficult, but there are things happening, you know, like in California, um, the seal of biliteracy has become um, really big in schools, which is a certification that students get once they prove that they're biliterate. Um, and and in, in many cases, um, both in California and in Washington, D.C., one of the ways that students can earn that is by taking an assessment. And that assessment is given both in English and whatever the student's native language is. And it is becoming more common that those assessments are available. So I wonder if it makes sense to kind of Collaborate and team up, you know, and just although that assessment isn't isn't obviously specifically testing the student on dyslexia But I wonder if since those materials are out there, you know They could be adapted and we kind of work together to to, to make sure that there are resources out there So that's that's one thing that I just thought of as you were speaking well, um, And
0: you could look at a test like that and you could look and see are there dips are there weak spots and are those weak spots something that might be an indicator of something like dyslexia Yeah,
2: that's what I was thinking. I mean, so much of this stuff happens in silos, you know, and it's like if we can kind of merge things together. So that's that's one idea. Maybe that's maybe that's useful. Maybe it's not. But the other one that I was thinking um, as you were speaking, you know, you're talking about um, having students read in their native language and see you know, sort of where they are there. And that also really supports an important. um, The research shows that when students hold on to their um, their own language, their native language, they're gonna make more strides academically. That's kind of Mm -hmm. the basis for dual language programs. We've talked about that quite a bit as well. So supporting the idea of having students read in their native language while also, I guess sort of testing when dyslexia is is suspected, again, is a a win-win in my mind.
0: I agree as long as they can read in their native language.
2: Yeah, yeah, but it's an <laughs> important point, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing you get to understand is that we have students from all over the spectrum, so there's just no silver bullet here, but we that have really a variety isn't. of resources and a variety of things we can actually try, I guess, if we yes. have the training.
0: Well, and you want to look and see if there are they um, – one of the ways that you can determine if something else is going on is, are they, um, are they progressing at the normal rate in other areas that don't require language learning, like math? So are they, if they are able to progress in math at a normal level, but they're not progressing in English learning, then I would say that's a red flag mm-hmm. because they obviously have the ability to learn and they should be learning at a different pace. So that's another red flag that you would wanna look into it.
2: Right, yeah, so we're kind of getting into this next question that I was gonna ask you, which is, which is, you know, why so many students with dyslexia and even more so English learners kind of slip through the cracks. And we just kind of talked about a couple ways we might be able to mitigate that challenge. Anything else that you would, that you would highlight there aside from, you know, reading in their home languages, if there are tests available, um, uh, looking at dips in one subject rather than the other, is there anything else there that we can look for?
0: Um, I would look at their spelling too and see if their spelling is showing you some indication. Um, I just, the big thing is just not to wait, not to wait for them to mature, not to wait for them to get it, just not not to wait once you see something we need to act because waiting for kids with dyslexia is just it's absolute wrong thing to do because then they especially if they have the intelligence and the ability to learn they're going to start to get more and more frustrated farther and farther they get in school and then now you're going to add things like so like social anxiety and just anxiety and bullying and kids making fun of you and just being just really frustrated and so you know Even if they're in first grade, if we see things and they're an English learner and they have dyslexia or they might have dyslexia, you have to do something about it right there. You just you can't wait. The waiting thing is just not healthy for anyone who's struggling. And if they have they're shown the ability that they can learn and they're not learning in one particular area, then that's a huge red flag.
2: Right. You've mentioned that a few times. Don't oh, wait. No, I'm i sorry. Think, No, that's great. I was I was just I wanted to reinforce <laughs> it. I think that's important. And you've given us a few reasons why. And I think it's I think it's worth mentioning that you brought up, you know, things like social anxiety and things like getting frustrated um, for for for, um, you know, the idea of just sort of, I guess, coping with or living with dyslexia um, over the long term. I mean, is it one of those things where the earlier you find it, the the easier it is to sort of live with it or cope with it? I mean, excuse my ignorance there, but I'm just curious Mm -hmm. about that.
0: Absolutely. I mean, in a perfect world, every kid with dyslexia would be identified in kindergarten. They would get the appropriate intervention in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, depending on the severity. And then they would just move on with their lives. And they would never step foot in special education leaving special education as a place for kids who really 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 need it and maybe need it for the full day thing kids with dyslexia shouldn't even be in special ed they should be taught how to read the appropriate way in kindergarten first grade and second grade because you can't identify it in kindergarten so there there is no reason to wait
2: yeah yeah and i think that's great that you mentioned that as well that they you know i think there are a lot of people would assume that these students will you know sort of be in special education for the long term but you know, the fact that you just mentioned that you you'd sort of learned to um, to, to to cope with it, learn to read the right, the way that works for you, and then you don't even need to be in those or have those services in place.
0: But I should add to that, that um, just because um, they get the appropriate intervention doesn't mean they no longer have dyslexia. Most of them will need accommodations as they get older and say, well, they will be able to use those for the rest of their lives. And dyslexia changes over the lifespan. So the difficulties will change as they get older, but they will always have dyslexia. They'll po- probably always be a spot in their in their life when language is causing a little bit of a problem, but at least they'll know how to decode and spell. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And you mentioned like the, the, they'll need sort of accommodations as they go through their educational experience in their lives. Once, once a diagnosis is in place in your mind, you know, for, for English learners, um, what do you think the best way is to provide accommodations for those students that they can better access the curriculum as they go through their educational journey while also, you know, learning English?
0: You know, this question was really hard for me because we do assistive technology a lot with kids with dyslexia and just um, kids who are English speakers, native English speakers, and we have a whole list of assistive technology things that we use. But I was trying to think about it for English learners, and um, the, the ones that really came to mind were the audiobooks. So mm-hmm. listening to stories is obviously going to help their um, oral language ability. So for um, an e- an English learner, I would also recommend that they um, read along with it while they have, um, while they are having it read to them. Um, and then um, being able to do speech to text is one as another thing they can dictate um, what they want to say instead of having to write it because kids with dyslexia have a much harder time writing and spelling than they do reading. I mean, They have difficulty with both, but spelling tends to be even harder. So if you have a kid who's also learning English and has dyslexia and now they have to spell, speaking into the computer and having it right for them might be better, but if you're learning English as a second language, I don't know if the computer will be able to adapt to any kind of accent. So it's it's tough to think of accommodations for kids who are learning English. Um, The other one I was thinking about was using a keyboard to Mm -hmm. help them because a lot of kids with dyslexia also have dysgraphia. And so, you know, taking the pencil out of their hand and giving them a keyboard often relieves them a little bit of the dysgraphia.
2: Right. Well, I appreciate those um, recommendations, and I also appreciate your transparency. I think anybody would would say that this is a difficult issue, and I'd be really (laughs) interested to hear, you know, what sort of some EL experts um, who have have worked with students with dyslexia would recommend. Um, And those folks can certainly comment, um, uh, you know, below the podcast. I would love to hear their opinions. I. I'm um, not one of those people. So I'm not going to venture a guess. But I think you have given us um, a good background and some recommendations and some ideas as to how to go about um, helping these students. And a lot of them, I think, if you understand what dyslexia is, uh, based on sort of what you've told us, are relatively simple accommodations um, to make and to try. But boy, the more you speak, the more I realize that You know, we need to have people in place in schools who are experts on both of these populations, on English learners and on dyslexia, and preferably people who are experts um, in both. And the good news is that I am seeing just in general um, more of a trend toward um, understanding, you know, the world of special education and the world of English learners, how they're similar, how they're different, and how they can collaborate to, to better serve these students.
0: Yeah, that would be great. I would love to see somebody who's an expert in both.
2: Yeah, well, if there's anybody out there or even if you think you if you've worked with both, I think both both you and I would like to uh would like to hear from them. Yeah, so Yeah, that'd be great. Um because I think, you know, in general, this is a this is a, an important conversation to have, but I think we're, we're taking this on as, you know, I'm kind of the the EL person here and you're the dyslexia person and there's I think there's still a lot of gaps to fill.
0: Absolutely. Lots to learn. Yeah, well, this is this is this has been
2: great. I'm gonna I'm gonna transition over to a couple of questions that we like to ask everyone who come on the podcast. This is my favorite question because I now have a library of like great books I can read, and that is, um, what is is there a resource or a book um, that has influenced you either personally or professionally that you'd like to share with with the audience?
0: Yes. So if if you're new to dyslexia, there is one book um, called Overcoming Dyslexia. It's by Sally Shaywitz. And it came out quite a long time ago, but it's still a really, really good introductory book into, into dyslexia. She talks a lot about the history of dyslexia and then the brain structure um, and how it affects students with dyslexia. She also goes into what's appropriate for someone with dyslexia. So that's something that um, is obviously really important for this conversation is someone has dyslexia, now what would what do you do? And there are specific things that you need to do to, in order to help a student learn to read and spell. And then um, for as far as... Um, Learning disabilities and, dyslex- and English learners, I actually found a, a book, I actually just met an author the other day. And the name of her book is Supporting English Learners in the Classroom. And it's Best Practices for Distinguishing Language Acquisition from Learning Disabilities. And so it's written by um, a professor of English language and then um, a, an attorney. So it's kind of a mix between um, IDEA and English learners and learning disabilities. And so I read a little bit. I just met her the other day, so I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing, but I went through the parts that were interesting to me, and it was really good. So I really liked how they did manage to incorporate it together, and there's a lot of charts in there, um, English learners versus dyslexia, or learning, they actually call it learning disabilities. So you can see what, what an English learner would know and what someone with dyslexia would know and what, are, what is the difference, not dyslexia, learning disabilities.
2: Oh, that sounds great. Do you? I'm going to yeah. put you on the spot. Do you know who the author is, the professor? It is. It's
0: um, Julie Esparza Brown and Eric Haas, H A A S.
2: Great. I don't, I thought that I had heard of that when you started to mention the title, um, but I don't think I have. So that's really great and like yeah, good. super apropos to our conversation. Totally.
0: So. I know. I was really, I was like, it was meant to be because I just met her last week.
2: Oh, that's great. Awesome. Well, boy, maybe you should, uh, should like to come on. I don't want to, um, I guess I should. She mention probably that would. She would be, be great. But that's a, that's a, that sounds like a great resource. I'll take a look at that and we will, um, we'll put both those resources on the, um, the show notes so that people can access them and find them um, as well. And I'm glad you gave one for each topic, which is pretty awesome.
0: Good. I'm glad. You'll enjoy them.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll look forward to it. And so I, we found out about you through the article that I mentioned in Language Magazine, which I'll link to as well. Um, but, um, I'd also like to sort of share how people can find out more about the work that you're doing aside from, from that one article.
0: Okay. It's funny because as I was sharing these books, I'm like, wait a minute, I wrote my own book. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I wrote a book called Dyslexia Advocate. So, um, it is a book that takes the parent and the teacher and anyone who's interested through how to advocate for a student with dyslexia. And then another one called Dyslexia and Spelling. Um, making sense of it all. So why is spelling so difficult and some practical activities you can do with a student who's struggling with spelling um, really goes into the actual structure of the English language uh, versus what a lot of people are taught. And then we have a website dyslexiatraininginstitute.org that you can go to. It has everything on there, including an annual conference that we have that's completely online in classes. We We have a lot of online classes and certificates. There's all kinds of stuff on there.
2: Awesome. Yeah, I should check out the website um, before we chatted. And there's lots of great resources there. And I'm glad you mentioned your books, um, as well <laughs> as the other books. Um, and so there's lots of places where folks can go. Uh, I think both of I correct me if I'm wrong here, I don't want to misspeak. But I think both of us would probably agree that you know, there are still some gaps here. But these yes. conversations are, are helping us hopefully fill some of those. And um, hopefully this this podcast episode was a minor contribution to that cause.
0: I hope so, too. I'm really I'm really happy that you had me.
2: We're happy to have you as well. Thanks so much, Kelly. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.